Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Justin Logan. I'm the director of the Foreign Policy Studies Program here at Cato. It's my pleasure to welcome you here uh, to a book discussion of the Kennan Diaries, uh, authored, obviously, by George F. Kennan, but edited with considerable care by Frank, Consti Frank Castigliola, who's joined us here today to discuss Kennan the man, Kennan's ideas, uh, and Kennan's place in the American foreign policy canon. Uh, Frank Castigliola is professor of history at the University of Connecticut. He focuses on U.S. foreign policy with particular attention uh, to the 20th century. Uh, but I want to start with a little bit of a personal biographical note that I think may shed some light on Professor Castigliola's interest uh, in George Kennan as a scholar and as a man. Um, in 1972, at age 25, uh, Frank Castigliola completed his PhD from Cornell and became an assistant professor at the University of Rhode Island. His first year there, he began carving a homestead out of 20 acres of woodland, clearing land for a garden and a pasture for a milk cow and steers. He helped build first a yurt, then a house, barn, and other outbuildings. And I think, as we'll hear this afternoon, Cannon had a similarly uh, pastoral outlook, a sort of small-r Republican affect uh, that I suspect, and I will be happy to be swatted down on this point, uh, if accurate, uh, created some affinity between Professor Castigliola uh, and George Kennan. Uh, just some of Professor Castigliola's other books include the more recent Roosevelt's Lost Alliances, How Personal Politics Helped Start the Cold War, that was Princeton University Press in 2012. He also authored France and the United States, The Cold Alliance <clears throat> Since World War II. That was published by Macmillan in 1992. And Awkward <clears throat> Dominion, American Political, Economic, and Cultural Relations with Europe from 1919 to 1933. That was Cornell University Press in 1984. So the way we'll do this today, Professor Castigliola will present uh, the book here from the podium. Uh, and I will offer some uh, prognostications and provocations uh, about the book, allow Professor Castigliola to respond, uh, and then we'll throw it open to Q&A. So with me, please welcome Frank Castigliola. Thank you, Justin, for that uh, in, uh, introduction. And uh, yeah, I guess Kennan did have kind of a rustic bent. In his later years, uh, in his, actually into his 90s, Kennan said what he really wanted to do, if he could ever persuade his wife to agree, which she never did agree, he'd like to leave Princeton where he was living and go someplace in northern Vermont or northern uh, New Hampshire and, uh, and have a little, little homestead there where he could tend the garden and, and do that kind of a thing. Uh, it's certainly appropriate for me to be speaking here about George Kennan to speaking here at, at the Cato Institute, because Kennan uh, was an iconoclast in, in many ways, particularly with regard to American foreign policy. Despite his influence on U.S. foreign policy at the dawn of the Cold War, particularly in 1946 and 47, Kennan, for most of his life, was critical of how the United States government formulated and implemented its policies toward other nations. Though Kennan was not a libertarian, and in fact, favored in some areas of life, governmental policies that were highly or would be highly intrusive in terms of uh, people's personal affairs. 
He did value individual rights, and he remained a conservative skeptical, skeptical about much of the change ripping through the United States and the world in the 20th century. Kennedy believed that the United States should pursue an astute, cautious, realistic, and honorable foreign policy guided by professional diplomats such as himself. And so far as America pursued, pursued any global mission, the nation should focus on becoming a model by perfecting its own institutions. While regarding himself as a teacher and as a prophet, Kennan voiced skepticism about the United States instructing, let alone forcing, other nations to adopt its values. Most of my talk this afternoon will consist of the actual words of Kennan, who is justly famous as a superb pro stylist. But I just want to say a few words now in terms of introductory material about Kennan, who lived from 1904 to 2005. Kennan's diary is valuable, I think, because it tells us about five important things. First, it illuminates the personal and the intellectual life of America's most famous foreign policy strategist. Second, the diary, diary has thoughtful reflections on recurring problems and dilemmas in US foreign policy. Third, the diary extending from 1916 to 2004 instructs us about the changes in the United States during those 88 years. Fourth, Kennan wrestled thoughtfully with basic human issues, such as the boundaries of love and responsibility and one's relationship to God. And finally, in Kennan's recording of his physical, psychological, and intellectual decline, we vicariously experience the cruel process of dying as one's small gifts are taken away little by little. His example suggests how each of us can, if we try hard enough, fade into history with dignity. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I should warn you that what the Kennan Diaries are not. They're not a full record of US life during those 88 years. There are no entries, for example, indicating Kennan's reaction to the 1929 stock market crash or the outbreak of war in 1939 in Europe or the attack on Pearl Harbor or the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Kennan often went for months without writing in the diary at all. Nor does he reveal big secrets about US foreign policy or about his personal life. Kennan remained always the discreet diplomat. He would have been appalled, for instance, at the actions of Edward Snowden. Kennan fully expected his diary to be read by others, and he was determined to protect his privacy and that of his family and other intimates. Despite some egregious blind spots in his perspectives, and there were, certainly were some egregious blind spots, Kennan was incredibly perceptive. He was often wise and far-seeing. And he wrote down in, for the most part, beautiful prose, much of what he saw and thought. Now, in my editing of the Kennan diary for the book, this is the book here, kind of hefty, at 700 pages, the toughest part was selecting, selecting from the 8,100 pages, 8,100 pages of the original diary, selecting 700 pages, roughly, to, um, to have for the published version. And in preparing this talk for you today, it was even tougher, cutting down, I, I assure you, I have done so, uh, cutting down the 700 pages to probably 12, 12 or so pages, or parts of pages. But I've tried to leave plenty of time for Q&A and discussion with Justin and with you, so we can talk about aspects of Kennan's life uh, and his foreign policy views that, that interest you. The diary begins here. We have a picture here of Kennan as, as an 11-year-old boy. And the diary begins, in the first page, 
in this simple little book, a record of the day I cast, so I afterwards may look back upon my happy past. George Cannon, 11 years old. George Frost Cannon grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in a bookish upper middle class family composed of his father, okay, switch to the next one here. Uh, his father, uh, his stepmother, and three older sisters and a younger half brother. And here's George in the upper, uh, in the, the second row there. And you could see George Kennan look then as much as he, you know, you could see that look in Kennan's face that, that didn't change a whole lot over the 101 years. Um, okay. Uh, George's mother, real mother, Florence, had died when George was only two months old. And although Florence had succumbed to peritonitis from a burst appendix, her son grew up believing that she had died giving birth to him. That guilt would help foster Kennan's lifelong melancholy. Now I'm jumping ahead here to 1933, December 1933, when Kennan was uh, accompanied the first American ambassador to the Soviet Union since the 1917 revolution. William Bullitt had, had been appointed by Franklin Roosevelt to reestablish diplomatic relations with, with Russia, and Kennan was going to Moscow with Bullitt. The train bearing the first American ambassador to the Soviet Union since the revolution crossed the Polish-Soviet border in the early twilight of a late December afternoon. And then Kennan wrote, I sat up nearly that whole first night looking out the train window. To me, this first contact with the Soviet Union has an exceptional meaning. I have spent five years in intensive preparation for it. I have a greater comprehension of the Russian language than I have ever encountered in any foreigner born and bred outside of Russia. I have a knowledge of Russian history and Russian literature, equivalent to that of the average educated Russian of the old czarist regime, and considerably better than that of the average product of Soviet education. Finally, I have spent the last two years compiling and analyzing Soviet economic statistics as a principal occupation and collecting materials for a biography of Antov Chekhov as a hobby. The result is a consuming curiosity about all things Russian and an intense excitement at the first actual contact with the Soviet world. Here's Kennan as a young diplomat, as he looked in 1933 and in the 1930s. Here's Kennan in Russia with his wife, Annalise, and their daughter, um, the young daughter in 1932, Grace. And here's Kennan uh, as he appeared in his early 1940s. The next entry is from 1944, when Kennan had just turned 40. Uh, the entry is, is from June, June 1944, the month of the D-Day invasion of Normandy. And Kennan, at that time, in early June 44, was in London working in the US Embassy in London. And he had just been named number two to the new American ambassador to the Soviet Union, Avril Harriman. And of course, in early June 44, uh, most of Western Europe was still occupied by the Germans. So in order to get to Russia, Kennan had to fly from London uh, through uh, to, to North Africa, to um, Egypt, to Iraq, to Iran, and finally to Russia. And on the way, he stopped in Baghdad, Iraq, uh, for a few days. And of course, at that point in 1944, Iraq was still a British uh, mandate from under the old League of Nations. Basically, 
kind of a semi-independent uh, area under, under British influence. So this is Kennan in late June 1944. The chief impression of Baghdad in the summer, which I carried away from those three days, was one of claustrophobia. All day, we were barricaded in the embassy where the temperature never fell below 90 degrees. There was outside much fiercer heat. We might look out the windows as one looks out the windows in zero weather in the north and see the burning, dusty wind tearing at the eucalyptus trees and the flat, bleached country enveloped in the colorless, colorless sunshine of the desert, a sunshine with no nuances, no shades, no shadows, a sunshine which does not even brown the skin, but only strikes and penetrates and dissolves with its unbending, hostile power. Into this inferno of heat, only mad dogs and Englishmen, as Noel Coward used to sing, could dream of venturing. What are the possibilities for America in Baghdad? Iraq is a country in which man's selfishness and stupidity have ruined almost all natural productivity, where vegetation can survive only along the banks of the great rivers which traverse its deserts, where climate has become unfavorable to human health and vigor. This is a population unhygienic in its habits, sorely weakened and debilitated by disease, inclined to all manner of religious bigotry and, fan and fanaticism, and condemned by the tenets of Islam to keep a full half of the population, namely the feminine half, confined and excluded from the productive efforts of society by a system, system of indefinite house arrest. This people has, has now come just enough into contact with Western life so that its upper class has a thirst for many things which can be obtained only in the West. Suspicion, suspicious and resentful of the British, they would be glad to obtain these things from us. They would be glad to use us as a foil for the British, as an escape from the restraints, restraints which the British place upon them. If we give them the things they want, we can perhaps enjoy a momentary favor on the part of those interested in receiving them. But to the extent that we give them aid, we weaken British influence, and we acquire, whether we wish it or not, responsibility for the actions of the Iraqis. If they then begin to do things which are not in our interest, which affect the world situation in ways unfavorable to our security, and if the British are unable to restrain them, we have then we then have ourselves at least in part to blame. And it then is up to us to take the appropriate measures. Are we willing to bear this responsibility? I know, and every realistic American knows, that we are not. Our government is technically incapable of conceiving and promulgating a long-term consistent policy toward areas remote from its own territory. Our actions in the field of foreign affairs are the convulsive reactions of politicians to an internal political life dominated by vocal minorities. Those few Americans who remember something of the pioneer life of the United States will find it hard to view the deserts of Iraq without a pang of interest and excitement at the possibilities for reclamation and economic development. If trees once grew here, could they not grow here again? If rains once fell, could they not again be attracted from the inexhaustible resources of nature? Could not climate be altered, disease eradicated? If they are seeking an escape from reality, such Americans may even pursue these dreams and enter upon the long and stony road which could lead to their fruition. But if they're willing to recall the sad state of soil conservation in their own country, 
the vast amount of social improvement to be accomplished at home, and the inevitable limitations on the efficacy of our type of democracy in the field of foreign affairs, then they will restrain their excitement at the silent expected possibilities of the Iraqi desert and will return like disappointed but dutiful children to the sad deficiencies and problems of their native land. Now here's Kennan in September 1945 uh, after a visit to Leningrad in the Soviet Union. I had been in Leningrad just three days of my life, and yet it was like coming home. I had read so much about it, and through the years I had spent in the Baltic states, I had come to love the flat horizons of the north, the strange slanting light, the wintry bleakness of nature, and the consequent accentuation of all that is warm and rich in human relationships. This is to me one of the most poignant communities of the world, a great sad city where the spark of human genius has always had to penetrate the darkness, the dampness, and the cold in order to make its light felt. And it has acquired for that very reason a strange warmth, a strange intensity, a strange beauty. I know that in this city where I've never lived, there has nevertheless, by some strange quirk of fate, a previous life perhaps, been deposited a portion of my own capacity to feel and to love, a portion, in other words, of my own life, and that this is something which no American will ever understand and no Russian ever believe. That was September 1945. Here's a little later in 1945, actually December 19th, 1945. Ken is in Moscow, and, and the, Ken, the, uh, the uh, Council on Foreign Ministers set up during World War II was, was meeting on a, on a regular basis. And so here was a meeting in Moscow of uh, Secretary of State James Burns, the American Secretary of State, uh, British Foreign Secretary Ernest Bevan from the Labor Party, and Molotov, the Soviet foreign minister. He writes in the diary, was invited by the ambassador to attend the foreign minister's conference this afternoon. Bevan looked highly disgusted with the whole procedure, and it was easy to see by his face that he found himself in a position he did not like. He did not, he did not, did not want to come to Moscow in the first place, and was well aware that nothing good could come of the meeting. The Russians knew his position and were squeezing the last drop of profit out of it. As for Burns, the American Secretary of State, Bevan saw in him only another cocky and unreliable Irishman, similar to ones he had known in his experience as a docker, Bevan as a docker, as a labor leader, as a docker and labor leader. Molotov, conducting the meeting, sat leaning forward over the table, a Russian cigarette dangling from his mouth, his eyes flashing with satisfaction and confidence as he glanced from one to the other foreign minister. Obviously, obviously keenly aware of their differences between each other and their common uncertainty in the face of the keen, ruthless, and incisive Russian diplomacy. Molotov had the look of a passionate poker player who knows that he has a royal flush and is about to call the last of his, last of his opponents. He was the only one who was clearly enjoying every minute of the proceedings. I sat just behind Burns and could, and could not see him well. He plays his negotiations by ear, going into them with no clear or fixed plan, with no definite set of objectives or limitations. He relies entirely on his own agility and presence of mind, and hopes to take advantage of tactical openings. In the present conference, his weakness in dealing with the Russians is that his main purpose is to achieve an agreement. The realities behind this agreement, since they concern only such people as Koreans, Romanians, and Iranians, 
about whom he knows nothing, do not concern him. He wants an agreement for its political effect at home. The Russians know this. They will see, they will see that for this superficial success, he pays a heavy price in the things that are real. <clears throat> After the meeting, I walked home with Matthews, who was another State Department official, and he stayed for supper. Frank Roberts, who is a uh, Kennan's colleague in the British Embassy in Moscow. Frank Roberts and his wife joined us. By the end of the evening, Matthews looked so crestfallen at the things he had heard from Roberts and myself, I felt sorry for him and had to try to cheer him up. In, in the introduction of newcomers to the realities of the Soviet Union, there are always two processes. The first, which is to reveal what these realities are, and the second, which is to help the newcomer to adjust himself to the shock. Now we move ahead here to, now the diary, as I said, doesn't include everything. And one of the striking things about what the diary does not include is the year 1947, which is the peak year, if you had to pick one year with the peak year of Kennan's influence in the US government, the US State Department in particular, uh, that was 1947. And yet that, the diary for that year is a single page of a verse, which is about personal matters and so there's nothing political. Kennan would write in the diary when he felt frustrated and so he had the year of the Secretary of State. He didn't need the diary in 1947. Uh, this is my comment on, on 48. Uh, despite his standing as America's premier strategist of the Cold War, Kennedy in 1948 began diverging from the Truman administration's policy. In 1947, he had quietly criticized the global reach of the Truman Doctrine. Far better, he had thought, to focus on aid solely to Greece and Turkey. Though he advocated covert operations and black propaganda in carefully controlled situations, Kennan also saw the Cold War as a limited engagement. Co confrontation with Moscow should be political rather than military and, and avoided in areas of marginal importance, such as China, as he saw it in Vietnam. Moreover, Kennan in 1948, um, Kennan in 1948 believed that with recovery already underway in Western Europe, the time might soon be ripe for serious negotiations with Moscow. In describing the diplomat best suited to conduct such negotiations, Kennan, in effect, nominated himself. In sum, while most officials in Washington and Moscow in 1948 were escalating the conflict, Kennan, though still very much a cold warrior, was beginning to look for ways to ease tension. Here's Ken in January 23rd, 1948. Talked this afternoon with Joe Alsup, who is a famous Washington columnist, who reproached me bitterly for the situation in Congress and insisted that the Secretary of State had never spelled out in an adequate way to the members of Congress the strategic realities underlying the Marshall Plan proposal. I argued with him at length about the extent of our responsibility, meaning the State Department's responsibility for the education of Congress in these matters. I pointed out that personally, I had entered a profession, diplomacy, which I thought had to do with the representation of US interests vis-a-vis -vis foreign governments, that this is what I had been trained for and what I was prepared to do to the best of my ability. That I had never understood that part of my profession was to represent the US government vis-a-vis -vis Congress. My specialty was the defense of US interests against others, not against our own legislature. I, I, resented, I resented the State Department being put in the position of lobbyists before Congress in, in favor of the US people. And I felt that Congress had a responsibility no less than the State Department toward the American people. We were not keepers of Congress or their mentors. It was up to them to inform themselves just as it was up, as it was up to the State Department to inform ourselves. 
I recognize, regretfully, however, that few will agree with this standpoint and that we might have to see what we can do to make somewhat plainer to members of Congress the overall implications of the questions which they're being asked to decide. Here's Cannon just actually a few days later, January 28, 1948, uh, when the question of what to do with the British mandate over Palestine, whether to divide it into what became Jordan on the dispute between Arabs and Jews over partitioning the British Mandate of Palestine, there was no hint of criticism of the Zionists, who were apparently blameless. The solutions toward which the memorandum pointed were all ones which will put further strain on our relations with the British and with the Arabs, and on the relations between the British and the Arabs. Such a policy could produce, such a policy could proceed only at the expense of our major political and strategic interests in the Middle East. Finally it, seemed, finally, it seemed clear to me that any further effort this government might make toward the execution of the partition plan could hardly fail to expand still further our direct responsibility in the matter and to bring, bring us closer to the day when we would be obliged to consent to the use of outside force as a means of enforcing the partition scheme. It is clear that once anything of this sort begins, there's no stopping point short of a state of affairs in which we would really have taken over the major military and political responsibility for the maintenance in Palestine of a state of affairs violently resented by the whole Arab world. I cannot conceive that this is in US interest or that it would be tolerated by the American people. I therefore see nothing to be gained starting in that direction. All in all, I have come to doubt that any arrangement for Palestine worked out by outside powers and enforced either physically or morally by the international community can ever prove satisfactory. Unless the inhabitants of Palestine, both Jews and Arabs, and the international elements which stand behind them, are finally compelled to face each other eye to eye with outside interference, they will continue to act irresponsibly. It may be there will be bloodshed in the wake of a negative American policy. But we Americans must realize that we cannot be the keepers and moral guardians of all the peoples in this world. We must become more modest and recognize the necessary limits to the responsibility we can assume. I'm going to make a huge leap here. Um, oh, we should see some more pictures, too. This is Kennan in the State Department, in his office. This is Kennan with the policy planning staff. He was, direct, he was appointed uh, first. Uh, directed the policy planning staff in, in, uh, in 1947. Here's Cannon as something which I am not talking about at all, but we can deal with in the Q&A. Here's Cannon as ambassador to Moscow, who proved to be a fiasco. He was ambassador to Moscow from May to uh, October 1952. Here's Cannon looking out the window of the American embassy um, uh, to, at, at the Kremlin. And here's Kennan, as, as I mentioned, he had a kind of a melancholy uh, bent of mind. And here's Kennan in one of his uh, unhappy moods. Uh, and the, the, Kennan was very much of an environmentalist. He had strong feelings about protecting the environment going back to the 19, 1920s and 1930s, when he was in his 20s and 30s. But this is, this is um, 
May, March 21st, 1977. Modern urban industrial man is giving to the raping of anything and everything natural in which he can fasten his talents. He rapes the sea, he rapes the soil, he rapes the natural resources of the earth, he rapes the atmosphere, he rapes the future of his own civilization. Instead of living off nature's surplus, which he ought to do, he lives off its substance. He would not need to do this were he less numerous and were he content to live a more simple life. But he's prepared neither to reduce his numbers nor to lead a simpler, a more healthful life. So he goes on destroying his own environment like a vast horde of locusts. And he must be expected, persisting blindly as he does in this depraved process, to put an end to his own existence within the next century. The years 2000 to 2050 should witness, in fact, the end of the great Western civilization. The Chinese, more prudent and less spoiled, may inherit the ruins. Here's February 23rd, 1979. Dramatic and somewhat menacing events in international affairs, the attack on our embassy in Tehran, the murder of our ambassador in Afghanistan, the Chinese attack on Vietnam, sounds like today, uh, the beginning of a new price rise and, short, and shortage of oil in the face of all this. And in the face of all this, our government has behaved in accordance with the worst traditions of American statesmanship, concerned on, almost exclusively with congressional opinion, rather than with the external effects of its actions. There's been a great deal of verbal flexing of, of the muscles and militant bravado, all of it directed exclusively to the internal audience, to hell with its effects abroad. One day, we issued thunderous warnings to the Russians not to attack Saudi Arabia, which the Russians had never even dreamed of doing, and to the Chinese not to attack Taiwan, which is equally far from their thoughts. Since then, we have also sternly warned the Russians not to intervene in Iran, which we ourselves have been doing for a full two decades. In all these cases, we have allowed it to be inferred that if our wishes were not obeyed, we would use force although in not one of these situations would our military force be the answer to the problem, even if we had more than the, more than the 20 odd divisions that we now have. We could move ahead here in the pictures. There's uh, Kennan, who actually was kind of a natural musician, taught himself to play the guitar and several other instruments, and he's there with, with Eric Severide. In the 1980s, Kennan's critique of US policies, particularly regarding nuclear weapons, would gain a wider public hearing. Once more, he commanded a voice in the national conversation. His stature as a respected man of conscience, conscience did not, however, yield the influence in governmental policy that he so earnestly sought. Although he dreaded the prospect of a nuclear catastrophe and thought it really could very well happen, a part of him also welcomed the possibility of a, such a catastrophe in terms of cleansing the planet of human, what he saw as human despoilment. And here's Kennan, um, April 5th, 1980. I am sick in the consciousness of what awaits my poor children and grandchildren in the event of a nuclear holocaust. But otherwise, viewing it from the broader standpoint, long for the day of the catastrophe, in order that the nature of these lovely continents, North, and South Amer uh, North America and Europe, now savaged and despoiled by overpopulation and commercialism, may have a chance to breathe, to recover, to cause these atrocities of man's handiwork to decay into the ruins they deserve to become, and thus to restore to the trees, the natural shrubs, 
the streams and wetlands, and the non-destructive animals, the dominion over God's great and beautiful creation, which they deserve to have. Now, Kennan in 1981 won the uh, Einstein Peace Prize, and he, was, he came home from the United, he was in Europe, came home to the United States to receive the prize, and this is, he wrote this on the, uh, on the return flight uh, to Europe. This is May 27th, 1981. The newspapers tell us of President Reagan's speech at West Point. It is a simple world picture that he paints, and a very old-fashioned one. It is so old-fashioned that I ought to love it as he sees, sees it and be thrilled by it. I cannot. I love certain old-fashioned values and concepts, but not his. He stresses the need for a revival of patriotism. I can imagine that were we ever to meet and talk face-to-face, -face, something which is most unlikely to occur, and never did occur, he might, remembering my evil reputation, look me sternly in the eye and ask, Kenan, are you patriotic? What could I say in reply? I would have to ask in, in turn, do you mean do I love my country? And if so, what do you mean by country? The land or the people? If you mean the land, then yes, of course I love it. I loved it as a child, the way it then was. Continue to love it today, to the extent that people have not yet made a wasteland, a garbage dump, or a sewer out of it. If you and your supporters who seem to have a positive hatred of all that is natural and beautiful in the land, complete the destruction of it, or encourage developers to complete it, there will be no nothing left to love. And the people? What do you mean, love people? I suspect what you mean when you speak of patriotism is, do I join you in idealizing them, in encouraging in myself and in others the view that there is something wonderful about the American people, something other people do not have, something that gives them a superior virtue and strength and entitles them to consider themselves leaders in the world, stronger and with greater authority than anyone else. If this is the way the question is put, the answer is decidedly no. Now, moving ahead to August 5th, 1987. Um, this is two years, a little more than two years after Mikhail Gorbachev came to power in the Soviet Union and was trying to reform uh, that country. Gorbachev is a remarkable man, so remarkable as to be almost inexplicable in terms of his own known professional background. What he set out to do, as he saw it, was no doubt to liberate Soviet society and the Soviet economy from the ill effects of the enduring traces of Stalinist terrorism on the one hand and the corrupting system of privilege on the other, by which the aging Brezhnev and his cronies contrived to hold things together for so many years. But these evils have bitten deeply into the fabric of Soviet society and have mingled and partially fused there with certain of the great distortions brought into the life of the Russian Empire by the Communist Revolution of 1917. It is this, in essence, that Gorbachev is running up against, whether he realizes it, realizes it or not, as he sets out to correct what he sees as the enduring evils of Stalinism and Brezhnevism in Russian life. He probably thinks this is all he has to correct, but he may find, before he is finished, that in some respects he has to correct the mistakes and the blind spots of the Bolshevik seizure of power in 1917, and even, and even to take upon his own shoulders some of the unfinished business of the old czarist regime. Russia has no lack of past follies that cry out for correction, and will require correction if Gorbachev is to make out of Russian society what he would like to make out of it.
this is a comment about Kennan in the 1990s. Kennan uh, criticized the war against Iraq, the first war against Iraq, as unnecessary and as diverting resources and attention away from the rehabilitation of America's domestic infrastructure and finances. Nevertheless, he was impressed with the spectacle of US military might. Contrary to what one might expect, he said little about the final collapse of the Soviet Union. Now here's Kennan, uh, again, a very prescient in terms of, I think, today. It's an entry from January 4th, 1997, when Kennan himself was, was uh, very close to being uh, 93 years old. And here's a picture of Kennan at 93. And he writes in January 1997 that the Russians will not react wisely and moderately to the decision of NATO to extend, to extend, extend its boundaries to the Russian frontiers is clear. I would expect a strong militarization of Russian political life to the tune of a great deal of hysterical exaggeration of the danger and of falling back into the time-honored vision of Russia as the innocent object of the aggressive lust of a wicked and heretical world environment. There will be efforts by the Russian leadership to persuade its neighbors to transform their relationship with Russia into one of an out-and-out -out military alliance and to develop much closer relations with Iran and China with a view toward forming a strongly anti-Western military bloc as a counterweight to a NATO pressing for world domination. Thus will develop a wholly and even tragically unnecessary division between East and West and in effect, a renewal of the Cold War. It's Christmas Day, 1999. Cannon was, was very close to uh, 96. He'd be 96 the following February. The unquestionable decline of my own powers, partly intellectual powers, but beyond that, going into the personal, the inability to confront the small distractions of life, the decline of memory, the limits of concentration, I see myself surrounded in this house by great piles of demands upon me, demands that I, don't, that, I don't, that I don't see in myself the power to cope with. Many of these arise, arise from expectations encouraged by things I have done in the past, coming from people who have no idea of the inner frailties of old age. I am, in this sense, the victim of my own past. The lesson of all this, I am sure, is that I have lived too long, have outlived myself, I have no defense against the refrain flung at me by so many, you look all right. <laughs> I try in the face of all this to do my best, but that is not good enough. And the awareness of that inadequacy is what weighs most heavily upon me. Here's November 21st, 2001. Regarding the war in Afghanistan, I find myself more of an isolationist than ever reflecting that we, as soon as we can detach ourselves from that mess, should concentrate on our efforts on developing at home alternatives to the importation of Middle Eastern oil. And we should do that in place of further efforts to play a role in the Middle East. Uh, March 18, 2003. The launching of the war in Iraq, the first firing in cold blood, is now the president has told us only some 36 hours off. The really active part or the really comprehensible part of the Kennan diary um, ends later that year in 2003. This is an entry from December, December 17th, 2003, when Kennan was 
couple of months away from turning 100. I have lived through the most terrible night in memory. Its agony sharpened by extreme dizziness and weakness, which frustrated several efforts to get into a standing position. What can I do? Give up? No. No, then there is nothing left but the end. So struggle along. Struggle along. And this is the very last page of the Kennan diary, where Kennan, who had beautiful, beautiful penmanship throughout his life, uh, tried to write. But if you can see that there, he's, he was not able to manage more, more than a scribble. Uh, Kennan, in his last year, could not write in the diary. A friend saw him near the end. His head, resting on a pillow, now had a skeleton of beauty. He could speak only a little, forcing out a few words with increasing difficulty. Kennan died peacefully at home on March 17, 2005, one year, one month, and one day after he turned 100. And so ended the journal begun by the 11-year-old in this simple little book, A Record of the Day I Cast, so I afterwards may look back upon my happy past. Thank you. Thanks a lot for that, Frank. That was a remarkable uh, tour d'horizon. And um, it's, rem it's just even more remarkable to think about 8,100 pages, 700 pages, uh, and 30-odd uh, minutes uh, of remarks. So a couple sort of global thoughts uh, about the diary uh, before getting into the uh, questions or, or sort of asking you to draw out a bit more from certain parts of it. Uh, it seems like one big lesson here is don't keep a diary. Uh, or if you do edit it yourself, uh, don't leave the sort of warts and all parts because, and I'll, and I'll talk a little bit about this, there, there are some really bracing, uh, to put it uh, uh, diplomatically, uh, passages in there that I think are illustrative um, both of the era, but also of the man. One thing that I think also was very, very apparent um, from the diary was, as you pointed out, his, his attachment to Russia and his feeling of a special sort of affinity, but his, and this is also obviously in the ex-Telegram, searing antipathy for the Soviet Union, a, a, a re real feeling of disgust uh, and, and, and sort of despoilment uh, of the Russia that he loved. So I want to bracket my, my comments or questions into three uh, general categories, and I hope I can just sort of spill them out and then maybe have you uh, give some thoughts about them, and then we'll open it up um, to a discussion with the audience. The first category, and again, Kennan, without real formal training in, in, in political theory or anything like that, but as an extremely erudite individual, is about Kennan's political theory. Um, and as it became clear, Kennan was profoundly pessimistic uh, about environmental despoilment, um, about the United States in particular, uh, about democracy as a form of government, about the automobile, about the computer, about technology in general, about air travel, which he was forced to use obviously very often. And so Kennan looked at all of these phenomena and, and, and remarked that the challenges of maintaining sort of small-r Republican governance at home uh, were quite enough without 
all of these uh, newfangled developments, but also without the messianic idea of remaking the world in our image that he came uh, to hate very much. And I think this is in some ways a strange analog or a strange counterpoise to the view that many conservatives or neoconservatives had of the Cold War. Um, and that view was, was to sort of agree with Kennan about all of the uh, uh, centrifugal forces, racial, societal, cultural, and otherwise uh, widening gaps between American society at home. But where Kennan said those projects deserve prioritization and that foreign policy should be reined in to deal with domestic problems, their view was that a messianic foreign policy could in some ways create countervailing forces, would in fact bring the country together. There's a, a famous quote um, from the late Irving Kristol, a nation whose politics turn on the cost of false teeth is a nation whose politics are squalid, right? So this idea of materialism, this idea that we're all going to, you know, who gets which slice of the pie is a really dangerous thing to be involved in, and that with some great foreign devil, perhaps there would be centripetal forces pulling us back together. So it's interesting that Kennan, uh, this profoundly pessimistic individual, um, had this view of, of, of domestic politics that in some ways mimicked in its anti-material uh, uh, and, and, and pessimistic view, the view of many neoconservatives, but drew a fundamentally different inference about the implications of that phenomena for foreign policy. So on Kennan's political theorizing broadly, question one, would it be? I thought, I thought we already had a number of questions here already. Well, I, you can, you could, uh, this, is, this is me rambling on, and I'll, I'll distill them down, and you can That's pick good. from them. How That's about good. that? Is it right to view Kennan as a sort of continental European conservative rather than a British conservative or an American conservative, where there's really a liberal element that, say, if we looked at a German Christian Democrat of the day, uh, there isn't that liberal element, right? There's, a, there's a, a, a conservatism that's clearly juxtaposed against liberalism and that he was uncomfortable with American or Anglo-American uh, conservatism. And so the other question, you're quite right, that I did already hint at, this interplay between domestic pessimism and foreign policy, where there was a lot of conservative domestic pessimism, but different inferences drawn um, about the implications for foreign policy. The second category of thing is the role of, of Kennan's views on identity uh, on his views of international politics. Um, and there's a theme, as I mentioned in the outset, that recurs throughout the diaries. Um, and some people, I think, and maybe you want to talk a little bit about um, Gaddis' work on Kennan glossed over some of the, again, I'll use the, the modifier bracing uh, characterizations of peoples and uh, uh, politics. Um, but there's a lot in here, and I think, you know, from a historical point of view, that's really important to understand the man and to understand um, his views. But a scene that recurs in these bracing passages and elsewhere is an appreciation of the role of identity politics and mass politics. Groups were really important to Kennan, and I think there's a lot to be said for that as, a, as an analytic um, lens. And I think he had, weirdly, for someone who held that view, a mostly unself-aware view of himself, despite all the exploration of his own uh, uh, place and this idea that he had a sort of Russian character. But there are explicit negative, jarring 
essentialist references to inter alia blacks, Latinos, women, um, and others throughout the book. And by 1987, Kennan had begun discussing America placing, quote, placing its foreign policies so extensively at the service of the emotions and prejudices of ethnic minorities, right? And this is something that's come up, obviously, uh, uh, repeatedly uh, throughout, throughout American foreign policy. And there was, in particular, this minor private controversy over the lack of diary entries referencing the plight of German Jews um, during his plight in Berlin. So I think there's this fundamentally illiberal um, normative appreciation of identity politics. But it's weird to me that it seems to me his policies seem to me, and again, I'm willing to be argued with on this point, quite liberal, right? So he, again, there are you know, references to uh, uh, Jews as a group and individuals getting labeled as Jews that sort of jump off the page at you and, and, and are jarring to a young relative to Ken and reader like me. But so we, we, there, there's this question also of you know, ethnic minorities and their role in American foreign policy. But in a book he published in the 1980s, The Cloud of Danger, Current Realities of American Foreign Policy, Kennan talks, and I think we can read between the lines here, um, and also the passage that you quoted, warning about the prospect of partition uh, uh, in Israel and Palestine. Kennan says there are basically two considerations that should guide our, our policy between Israelis and Palestinians. The first is that we must be prepared to do all in our power, short of direct military involvement, to prevent the destruction of the state of Israel. The second is that we must assure that no other great power comes to dominate the Near and Middle East as a whole. Well, that doesn't just seem to me the, the, the thinking of, a, of an anti-Semite, the thinking of someone uh, who, who harbors uh, any antipathy uh, toward such people as a group. Um, but is it Kennan's lack of romance uh, about different political groups and different political causes that got him into trouble. Uh, because he certainly does have this great romantic attachment to Russia, to the idealized Russia, and to the United States, the idealized United States. Um, but he really did have a, uh, 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 an unromantic view of a lot of politics. And I wonder whether that wasn't what got him into a little bit of trouble in his day um, and would have gotten, into a, gotten him into a heck of a lot more trouble uh, in the contemporary age. And finally, and again, pick from these whatever you find interesting, or if you don't, we'll go to the audience to see if they can spur something. Um, Kennan's thoughts on the foreign policy establishment. So just to reveal too much, I, I sort of thought about uh, framing this event initially as George Kennan and the foreign policy establishment, because it really is remarkable that, you know, if you could get Americans to name one or two foreign policy thinkers of the 20th century, uh, Kennan, I think, would be there. And he did, humorously to my eye, in 1987, characterize himself as, quote, probably the most extensively honored private person in the country, and at the same time, the person least heeded when he speaks. Uh, and that's, you know, that's an interesting <laughs> phenomenon. What, what, what's the deal? Uh, how, how could that be possible? Uh, and he did have, I think, those juxtaposing um, appreciations of his own brilliance and intellect, and then, but nobody gives a damn. You know, I mean, he was, he was both... Uh, 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 arrogant and extremely uh, the opposite of it, you know, self-deprecating and uh, 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 looked down on himself in a certain extent. And so in the latter book, the last book, Around the Cragged Hill, the sort of personal philosophy, there's some sort of crazy ideas in there, right? He was going to set up a council of state. 
uh, which was sort of a way to circumvent American democracy where him and his buddies could run things. Um, and that's a snarky way of putting it, but not that far off the mark, right? It was designed to be insulated from politics and people who um, um, had smart people could run things. Um, and he dallied, he sort of kicked around the idea of maybe breaking up the United States, right? Maybe it's just gotten too big and you break this thing up to a dozen constituent parts and then we could have small r Republican governance there. Um, and so how did he think he had evolved away from the foreign policy establishment or it had evolved away from him? Um, that's a puzzling thing. And he, he agonizes over it a lot here, but maybe somewhere in the course of those uh, 6,500 or 6,400 other pages of things, uh, you saw a bullseye because I, there was a lot of agonizing here, and it's just a fascinating aspect of him coming into contact with a lot of people. Dean Acheson, totally different policy views. Um, his countenances with people during the Vietnam War, which he vocally vehemently opposed. Um, and so what did Kennan give that divergence enough systematic thought uh, to why this condition emerged. And just to snap this back to a sort of 2014 July question, do you think there are any forces in American foreign policy today or any figures in American foreign policy today or any uh, dispositions in American foreign policy today uh, to which Kennan would attach much hope? So I think I'll just leave the, the questions and provocations there. If you want, um, maybe just you can answer from there. The okay, microphone will sure. be on. And then I'll uh, bring questions in from the audience. So if you'd like to take any of that. Well, that was wonderful, actually. Thanks. <laughs> that was great. That was very good. Um, well, there's a lot here. There's certainly a lot. Let me address some of, the, some of these questions. Um, first of all, I think you know, we have to, in terms of looking at George, he lived a long time. You know, so that's, that's part of the explanation. Is a man who lived to be 101 years, and um, and and who's educated. He's a man in many respects. He's a man of the early 20th century, and he continues to be a man of the early 20th century in the late 20th century. Uh, and in fact, Kennan regarded himself. He often said that he felt like he was a man of the 18th century. So, so part of that, I think, part of that, the man out of his chronological time, part of that accounts for. That's part of the brilliance and part of the eccentricity of Kennan. It's part of the brilliance because he has, he has the perspective of an outsider, so in some respects. And so he can see things more, more uh, he's more discerning about factors that people who are in the middle of events can, can see. But in terms of, um, you know, Kennan certainly, we, he was, I think in our contemporary terms, was a misogynist, he was a homophobe, he was a racist. Uh, I don't think he was anti-Semitic. But he certainly he saw Jews as, as a distinct ethnic group, which was a um, kind of a commonplace in early 20th century America, uh, but was not at, at, at the end. For instance, you referred to Monica Lewinsky in the diary as the Jewish intern. I mean, that's, we, we wouldn't think of it that way, right? Um, but, but also, we have to remember that Kennan, a lot of, in terms of what you said, his background, he wasn't formally trained in political theory, but he did have an excellent education. I was talking with another historian just the other day who looked at, was looking at Kennan's period in military school, St. John's Military Academy, uh, where he basically went to high school. And looked at, this person, a historian, looked at the other graduates of St. John's in Kennan's year, and they went on to very distinguished careers. Kennan had quite good um, high school teachers, so to speak, at Military Academy. He had an excellent education at Princeton. And then, and then he spent time in Europe. He went to, to, uh, to Germany in particular 
um, for much of the late 1920s, where he studied for three years, studied the Russian language, Russian literature, and just also soaked in the culture. So a lot of what Kennan's perspective is that kind of interwar European angst about and, and distrust of modernism and so forth. So that's part of modernity. That, that's part of Kennan's perspective, which he carries into the late 20th century, mid and late 20th century. I mean, Kennan is a conservative, a conservative, or, organic conservative, certainly not a neoconservative, but, but an organic conservative who I think part of that is that's one reason why he kept the perspective, a lot of his perspectives from the early 20th century, he kept in later decades, um, and that accounts for, the, again, the oddness, but also the, the, uh, the discerning view. And, and you know, I think that's, uh, that, explains, that explains a lot. Um, with regard to foreign policy and domestic policy, uh, I'm not sure exactly, Justin, what conclusions you were drawing from that, because Kennan is all over the map, uncertain of these issues. But what struck me, uh, it's not so much what I talked about today, but what struck me is that Kennan was always very concerned throughout his life, was very concerned to reform American domestic society. Um, and what he meant by reform was basically to uh, not well, to tighten things up in general. He was kind of suspicious of too much American individualism, suspicious of overplay of commercialism. Um, he wanted more of a kind of more a direction of American society from a leadership of elites. Um, and Kennan, at the end of the long telegram, and particularly at the end of the Mr. Mr. X article, when he's laying out the Soviet threat and why the United States has to confront the Soviet threat, when Ken is talking about specifics, what should we do? If you look at the, if you look at the um, again, Mr. X article in the long telegram, at the end, specifically, okay, what should we do? Kennan mostly talks about domestic reform, dealing with the, the, um, the uh, irrational aspects of American society, tightening things up, making Americans more focused, rather than great foreign policy initiatives. I mean, he does talk about basically rebuilding Western Europe, but he's... He, <clears throat> This idea of reforming the United States is present. Kennan talks about that in the 1930s. He talks about it in the diary in the 50s and 60s. Uh, it's a constant element throughout his life. In some respects, this is, this is an exaggeration, but in some respects, he sees foreign policy as a means toward accomplishing the domestic reforms that he sees as needed. Another aspect of Kennan, which I think is really crucial to understanding him, is that Kennan had, had enormous abilities just enormous abilities in many, many ways. He was a really brilliant man in many, many ways. But even more, larger, larger than those abilities were Kennan's aspirations for himself. He really thought that he had the ability and the, and the, uh, and the discernment and the, and the knowledge to play a leading role in changing American domestic and foreign policy, particularly foreign policy where the president, you know, the executive branch, can, can, can take more, uh, has more leeway in taking action. And so when Kennan is talking about that he's the most honored man in America, and yet people are not listening to him, that not listening, that's the, the really important part to him. He really, I mean, as late as 2003, as late as 2003, he's writing in the diary. He's now 99 years old, and the Bush administration, you know, is in power. He's writing, well, they might call on me. I'm not sure if they will for advice, but if they do, he wants to be ready. I mean, it, it, that hope, that aspiration of, of playing an important role 
um, in government ne ne never, never left him. Um, uh, in terms of anti-Semitism, I think I, I addressed that. I don't think he really, he wasn't. Again, it's a different sensibility. It's a different sensibility, which, you know, Adolf Hitler made Semitism. There's a lot of anti-Semitism in the United States in the first half of the, uh, before World War II. Uh, Adolf Hitler made that very, you know, politically incorrect. Kennan, in a sense, kept some, not the anti-Semitism, but kept, the, as I said, the sensibility of, of Jews as being a distinct uh, ethnic group, uh, which is very much the, the, the way people saw things where, where he was in Germany, uh, in Weimar, Germany, and he also spent years in, in Latvia and Estonia, where Jews were regarded as, as a distinct Or the upper Midwest in the early 20th century. Yeah, that's, that's very true. That's, that's very, very true. Um, so maybe, uh, well, do you want to No, that's perfect. And, that's perfect. Yeah. No, thank you very much for indulging me. So we'll go to the audience for questions right now. Um, we have, I think, a considerable amount of time, 25-ish minutes. Um, please wait for a microphone to be brought to you. Um, please ask a short question uh, about Kennan and the diaries. And I saw the lady in the back in the middle there first. So if we could send a microphone. Yeah. <clears throat> go ahead and ask your question. Uh-oh. And I'm sorry, while we're turning on the microphone, if you could identify yourself too, please. The microphones, for some reason turned off. Let's see if we can get it fired up. Okay. I'm Yang No Yun, Foundation for Empowerment. Actually, I, I mean, thank you very much for your interesting reading. I have a... Up just a little bit. Okay. Sorry. I, I have met uh, George Kennan at the age of 100 years, his birthday, and there was a special uh, seminar at the IAS. And I was there because I was a visiting scholar at Princeton University. And the, uh, uh, my partner was a fellow at IAS. So we are living in IAS. And then at the time he was, he could say a couple of words. Thank you very much for his birthday. Um, my, um, first of all, anti-Semitism. I'd like to, uh, I am very surprised, but I'd like to remind that he was hired by Oppenheimer at IAS, which was established by Jewish person for Jewish education. Then later on, he changed his mind to become a great, the institution for the great mind, which is full of the Jewish, um, from the starting from Einstein. So it doesn't seem to make a sense that he's anti-Semite. So I really uh, can agree with you that he might to be sensible person. And, um, when he had uh, this, when there was a centennial um, conference, uh, many uh, distinguished people came and then they asked, I mean, they gave a presentation. At the time, I didn't have a chance, but I had a chance to ask distinguished um, speaker, uh, Strobe Talbot, about the uh, Kennan's influence, uh, influence on uh, Marshall Plan in East Asia. And then Strove Talbot uh, tried to explain, and he said, yes, it has an amazing influence. But then he couldn't uh, finish all the discussion with me because of his own uh, the, uh, official function. So my, yeah, my question here now is, what is his um, influence on the uh, um, US policy on East Asia, if there's any? And what is his view on East Asia and the in, especially in his diaries. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
Well, yeah, thank you. I, yeah, I, I was also at the, in Princeton for the centennial celebration of, of Kennan's um, life. Yeah. And, and certainly, I agree that I was also at the Institute for Advanced Study for a year. So I, certainly, Kennan, that, was, that is an institution that's very strong, uh, originally founded as a kind of refuge for Jew, Jewish American intellectuals. Einstein was there and so forth. And Kennan was very close with Oppenheimer, uh, personally. Uh, they were very close. So Kennan's view on East Asia. Uh, of course, Europe was his area of expertise. Uh, and it's kind of interesting when he talks about the continents he wants to see saved or, or kind of uh, reborn after nuclear catastrophe. He talks about the beautiful continents of Europe and North America. Doesn't mention the others. Um, but with regard, to East A with regard to Asia, Kennan was influential in changing US policy toward Japan in 1947-48 from um, basically uh, punishment of the Japanese elites who had brought on World War II, shifting that policy toward rebuilding Japan. Kennan went out to Japan, had a long uh, visit there with the American authorities, and met with Japanese uh, officials in the American Occupation Authority, MacArthur and others. And Kennan was influential in shifting US policy, as I said, toward rebuilding Japan. Uh, when the Korean War came, um, Kennan thought that the United States should certainly respond uh, against, intervene in, uh, respond against North Korean aggression, but Kennan was against, against going north of the um, 38th parallel. He thought that was a dangerous step. And uh, in the early 1950s, Kennan uh, came out in favor of recognizing Communist China, the People's Republic of China. He thought, regardless of our views toward the, that government, it represented or it was in power. It was in power in China, and it was only practical, it was unrealistic to deal with them and to allow those uh, that government to take uh, Chiang Kai-shek's seat in the United Nations. So, you know, Europe was always an area of his concern, but he did certainly have some views on East Asia that were fairly, fairly progressive. Um, let's go, let's go to the gentleman in the blue shirt, uh, second, right there, all the way in the back. Hi, my name is Ross Silvestri. I'm actually a freelance writer in the area. And my question is, what were Kennan's views about the concentration of foreign policy decision-making within the executive branch after World War II, you know, and as well as, you know, shifting, you know, the State Department, as the years went on, became, had a less and less role in decision-making. And it foreign policy decision-making essentially became concentrated in the White House and the National Security Council. And did you think that had like a negative effect on how we conducted on our foreign policy in the years on? Yeah, so what were, what were Kennan's views with regard to the devolution of foreign policy to other agencies? Now, Kennan was very much against that. Uh, he certainly identified with the State Department. He had, had many decades of service in the State Department and thought the State Department was, should be the agency conducting US foreign relations. You should not have a really robust, large National Security Council. You should not allow the Defense Department to share, in the, uh, share to a significant, de significant degree in the making of foreign policy. Kennan believed that foreign policy should be carried out by, should be formulated and carried out by trained people who are trained diplomats. Now the Secretary of State of course, it was a political appointee. But he had great faith in, in the uh, trained bureaucrats and thought that foreign service officers and thought that they should have the primary role. 
Uh, let's go to the two ladies, one, two, right here in the aisle. We can take them both since they're together. Might be different questions. Leandra Bernstein, Ria Novosti. Um, actually, two related questions. Uh, you did mention Kennan's views on the expansion of NATO. I'd just like to, if you could put it in the context of today's expanded NATO, um, Anders Rasmussen was just in town uh, saying that the role of NATO is to preserve a free and uh, a Europe whole and free, all, all of these things. Uh, calling and demonizing Russia, Vladimir Putin. How would Kennan uh, view the situation right now with respect to Russia and NATO? And then also his view of uh, how he might view U.S. diplomacy now. I know that the previous ambassador to Russia didn't even speak the language. Um, he was accused by the administration of trying to foment uh, colored revolution during the during the Russian elections in 2011, I believe. So how how those two things might be viewed by Kennan today? So two good questions. Um, you know, as as uh, Justin mentioned, Kennan Kennan loved the Russian people and loved Russian culture uh, and had a great distaste for the Soviet government. But that love for the Russian people. I'm going to get to your question. The left of the Russian people bled into his recommendations toward on, on uh, policy toward left of the Russian people bled into his recommendations regarding the policy toward the Soviet government, where he kept on calling for negotiations. I mean, Kennan saw the Gold Cold War as kind of a kind of a very active kind of containment. Containment is a very active kind of foreign policy. You wouldn't have these frozen positions and non uh, just not, two sides not dealing with each other. Uh, for long periods of time. And Kennan, you know, throughout, throughout his career, tried to see things from the Soviet point of view, from the point, point of view of Moscow, as well as from the point of view of Washington. And a um, couple of things in related to, to, to your first question. What, what, it's not in the diary, but a really striking um, document is in, in early 1948, the Secretary of Defense, James Forrestal, is kind of very much of a hawk, Forrestal asked Kennan to draw up a, a, a list of war aims. If the United States went to war with Russia and we won that war, what would be our war aims? What would we want to do with the Soviet Union? And Kennan thought carefully about this, and he goes on and on talking about how the Baltics should probably become independent states. states. But Ukraine, he says, the Ukraine should remain part of Russia. He said the Ukraine was intrinsically as part of, a part of Russia, even though despite some differences in language and culture, the Ukraine... Ukraine was intrinsically as, part, as much a part of Russia as the American Midwest was a part of the United States. And he goes on and on about this. It's not just mentioned briefly. So I think that Kennan um, would, as I said, you know, when I quoted from the diary, he regarded the expansion of NATO, you know, not, certainly it doesn't include the, the Ukraine, although there's been talk about that. He regarded the expansion of NATO as a mistake because it was expanding Western influence at a time when Russia was weak. And sooner or later, the Russians would become, again, more powerful, or they would have greater discontent with their position, and they would then respond negatively. And it's Kennan kind of laid that out there in the diary. You're drawing a line between East and West. And, and I think Kennan saw NATO as unnecessarily uh, kind of reinforcing, reaffirming itself as an ally, as, as an alliance against Russia by expanding toward Russia's border. So I think he would see that as... As, as, as unfortunate, 
as an unfortunate. Uh, and then your second question is, well, how would he regard American policy today? Diplomacy today. Uh, well, that's a very tough, tough kind of question. But I think that certainly very tough kind of question. But I think in general, Kennedy would favor, I think he would have favored um, Obama's efforts to disengage from, or stay disengaged from war in Iraq, as well as Afghanistan. Kennedy saw the, those wars as, as mistakes. Um, and I think in general, you know, Kennedy, Kennedy was not really a big um, fan or didn't, in terms of his, his gut level instincts of what should be US foreign policy interests. He was not a great fan of an informal American empire. He thought the United States should defend its interests, very firmly and distinctly defend its interests. And for instance, I, I would think, and of course, you know, what do I know, really, when you come down to it? But I would think that, say, with regard to, let's say, the situation in Syria and Iraq today, Kennan would, rather than trying to have the United States actually influence who was going to come out on top, on the ground, given all the indeterminacy and all the messiness and all that, Kennan, I think, would be, the, would be inclined to say, whoever comes to power, these are American interests. These are American interests. This is what the United States wants in terms of defending itself and its close allies. Don't mess with us or else X or Y. And I think he would probably favor the drone strategy to some extent, but not try to put in power this government or that government, this group or that group. I mean, that's my sense of how he would deal with things. Let's take the other one on the aisle there, just because I promised. Thank you. Hi, I'm Bonnie Taylor with the International Affairs Office from the National Park Service. I was wondering, since Kennan is in a rather unique position because he got to see the failed League of Nations stem from the talking points of the got 14 to see points. What? I'm sorry, what? He got to got see to what? See, can you just repeat it? He got to see um, the League of Nations be created from Woodrow Wilson's 14 okay. talking points and then fail, and then also got to see the rise of the United Nations and watch it grow and develop. I was wondering, you know, regarding how misanthropic he was, how did he feel about the United Nations? Did he think it was necessary and it played a good role, or were his feelings similar towards how he felt negatively about NATO? I think he, when, certainly when the United Nations was created uh, in 1944-45, he thought it was a waste of time and a, a, a diversion of um, American efforts and interest into an institution that would be um, meddlesome, I'm, I'm being negative because that's, he was very negative about the United Nations. It would be meddlesome or useless. Um, Kennan thought that affairs among nations should be settled by diplomats dealing privately, secretly with each other rather than in some kind of public forum. He thought the League of Nations obviously had failed and the United Nations would not do much better. Now, of course, after the United Nations was established as an, and made kind of a key institution, um, and the carrying out of American foreign policy, particularly in the 1940s and, and early 1950s, Kennan, you know, went along with the tide and, and his policy recommendations and so forth took that into account. But it was not as if he ever thought the United Nations was, should be a major um, venue or vehicle for, for American foreign policy. In other words, Kennan was a realist. Uh, let's take, let's go in the back uh, with a beard. Gentleman right there. Hi, I'm Eddie Becquerel. I do some research in Washington, D.C. in the archive. And uh, it sounds to me that Kennan was a, a bit of a new dealer in foreign policy, meaning that 
he saw big government as the way to go. And, uh, you know, they, and that's his time mark. That's when he comes, to, comes of age during that period. So he saw the, the, the important role, he thought, of government playing in dominating this group. And, and there were other things that were going on at the same time. The, the New Deal came about because uh, there was a crisis, the Depression, where all of this international money basically collapsed and there was this depression. And that was caused by sort of a rampant amount of loans that went to, to build up the infrastructure in foreign countries and they couldn't pay it back. And then that led to the, the downfall of it. Now after, when you talked about his discussion with Alsop in 1947-48, there was some uh, uh, reluctance on the part of many to let the State Department run the Economic Cooperative Administration to run the economic reconstruction because these weren't businessmen. They wanted to put, they wanted to set up AID and, and have businessmen run uh, the reconstruction of, of Europe. So then all of a sudden it was taking the role away from State Department. And then with Eisenhower coming in, of course, both the State Department and the CIA were run by lawyers, the Dulles brothers, who had represented many of these corporations and this is then the expansion of multinational corporations who wanted to create markets and have raw materials and have an influence on the U.S. government. So if you could put the economics back into the politics of it and see if, if that's – am I correct to think that it was in that Eisenhower period that, that Kennan becomes the most frustrated with the, the way things were going? Well, you know, Kennan – Actually, in, in Princeton, one of the subjects he did worse than was economics. <laughs> and uh, he was never, I would say, he was not very interested in the economic side of things. But to, to get to your question, he definitely thought that the Marshall Plan, the ERP, the ECA, however, different agencies, uh, with regard to the Marshall Plan, that the State Department should run it. It should be, and, and he says specifically, I think in an entry, right after the entry where I stopped reading, he says specifically the State Department should run the Marshall Plan because this is above all, and I think it gives you an idea of relationship, what he saw between economics and politics. Kenneth says, above all, the Marshall Plan is a political, a political policy, economic means toward political ends of rebuilding confidence and, and, uh, in Western Europe and tying those countries closer to the United States. So he thought if you're going to have the political ends in the Marshall Plan, the State Department should be the ones running it. They're the ones who, whose job it is to... Uh, to carry out political policies. And he, he thought it was a mistake to have the businessmen, you know, be involved or, or to, to play that kind of a role. And just to compound that, he, of course, was shared a deeply unpopular view with Eisenhower of ultimately rebuilding Germany uh, and European power as a third force and leaving uh, NATO, not keeping it as a permanent uh, American plaything and being. Um, let's go right there on the aisle, gentlemen, the blue tie. I think it's blue. It's Cleveland. Right. John Kunstadter, Red Zima Photo. Professor, thank you for, for a very cogent presentation. I'd like to return to Kennan's concept of Russia. Uh, does he go in, in the diaries, does he go into his thoughts about what Russia means? I mean, if he got Ukraine so badly wrong in terms of how Ukrainians see themselves as very different from Russians, I, I would assume he would have made the same mistake about Belarusians did he? Does he go at all in the diary into what 
Idel Aral might think Tatars, the Tatars in Tatarstan, the Tuvans. I mean, the, the fact that Russia itself remains an empire, does he talk at all about that? Thank you. Uh, that's a very interesting question. Um, and I think this is one of, one of Kennan's blind spots. It, it, he's, he's, in many respects, a great Russian, meaning, you know, that he, he, believe, he believes in the Russian empire. And, and I mentioned that... Um, that he doesn't say very much about the, the fall of the Soviet Union. I mean, there's really a couple lines. He says it's a great historic day, you know, but without, okay, so I could have said You're the that. the Russian you know. guy here. Yeah, yeah. Anybody, anybody could have said that, right? Um, so, no, right. He, he's not sympathetic, really, to, uh, to the various ethnic groups that are basically under, under Russian control. In fact, there's a, the, John, you mentioned John Gaddis, who did the biography of Kennan, and uh, Gaddis interviewed um, Loy Henderson, who's kind of a, one of Kennan's seniors, right before Henderson died. And Henderson said, that Kennan said to him, and I don't know when Kennan said this, but it was probably in the 40s, you know, like 1940s, something like that. Um, Kennan said to him, he could not understand why the, the people, the Lithuanians and Estonians and Latvians, why they wanted separate countries instead of being part of, and part of, part of Russia. So and, and, and when the Soviet Union fell apart, Kennan, as it was falling apart, Kennan was, was, was worried that the various parts of Russia would go flying off and it would be a very unstable kind of situation. So I think, um, as I said, he's a great Russian. Suicidal nationalism yeah, was the yeah. big fear. Right, right. So if you really want to ask a question, you look like you do, sir. This will be the last one. Uh, and then we'll wrap up. Wonderful. My name is Stephen Shaw. Wonderful talk. But how do you explain the complete absence of a Gott mit uns attitude on Kennan's part when this was quite common among people in both political parties? And also, when it was said when Calvin Coolidge died, Dorothy Parker said, how do they know? And could that <laughs> remark also be said about Kennan? Well, Gott mit uns, during what time period? I mean, what, 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 which America as a city on a hill, or a model, an inspiration for the, the world, American exceptionalism, all of these fantasies seem to have, he seems to have been immune to all these fantasies. Well, I think that's true. He was. <laughs> he was. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think he, he saw, as, he, as a, that's one reason I read that, that passage, he's replying in his mind to, to Reagan. He, he's not a believer in American exceptionalism. Um, I think, you know, Kennan sees the role of the United States as, in some respects, this is why he's an early 20th century guy, those sensibilities carry over, that the United States is a player, you know, by the end of the century, so the major player in the world, but a player, not the only player in the game, one of many players. And Kennan sees that, that that's a much healthier situation. In the United States, he did not believe, he did not believe that there was a, an American solution for every problem. Just because there's a problem in the world didn't mean the United States had the answer, answer for it. It's probably a, a good note on which to end. Let me make a couple housekeeping notes before we do so. Uh, we have sandwiches and Cokes and whatnot uh, upstairs. We also have books for sale. Uh, and I want to implore you just as a, a beautiful volume uh, to read and to keep on your bookshelf. It is a really 
fascinating both look backward into history and a reminder of when people could write English prose well. Uh, so I encourage you to, to get a copy uh, and to ask Professor Constigliola to inscribe it for you. Uh, and please thank me, join me in thanking him uh, for coming. <laughs>